This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Leo Blasey breaks down the Mass in Part 1 of The Mass Explained. What is the Mass? Why is there a penitential rite? Do the readings have something in common? Let's find out as I, Donetta Robin, interview Father Leo Blasey. Okay, we're here today on Double-Edged Sword with Father Leo Blasey. Father Leo is an earthly father and a grandfather. After his wife died, he entered the priesthood and was ordained June 3, 2017 at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina. Father Leo is retired from the U.S. Army where he was a mechanic then a helicopter pilot and eventually a maintenance test pilot. He is here today to help us understand what we are participating in when we're at Mass and how we can better partake in the Mass. So let us begin. First of all, before we get into the Mass, Father Leo, what is the Mass and why is the Mass important? Well, the Mass is our participation in the celebration of the eternal mass that's going on in heaven. You can see that described in the book of Revelation, and we're lifting ourselves up to to be in the presence of God. And, and through the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, we are drawing ourselves as a church, as a people, into the body of Christ. And so if we're not expressing that, if we're not feeling that when we're at mass, then we're we're not involved enough in what is going on to, to really have made ourselves part of that celebrations. So we're actually praying with the angels and saints in heaven who are praising God? Yes. Okay. For all eternity. And is that why, I guess, the Mass is termed the highest form of prayer? Yes. Okay. And and that is probably why the Church says we need to partake of it every week if, if we can. Yes for able-bodied. As often as possible, but at least once a week. Okay. And let's start. The faithful come into the church, and they're usually greeted by somebody in, in most Catholic churches. And then we come in and we take holy water and make the sign of the cross. Why do we do that? Well, we begin all of our prayer with the sign of the cross because that's the sign of our faith. That's a recognition of the Trinity. And again, we're, we're making ourselves part of that prayer by being involved in it with the action and with the word. And that's a major part of all of our prayer, and especially the Mass, is that we're supposed to be involved with it actively. So we do physical things. We stand up and we sit down and we we do actions within the Mass. The documents call for us to be fully and faithful, active in the Mass. So if we're not participating, if we're just there and and going through the motions, then we're not getting out of the Mass what, what God desires for us to get out of it. So we need to be involved. And the the first place that we involve ourselves when we come in is we make the sign of the cross with the holy water to help us to prepare ourselves for the, the beauty of what's about to happen. Okay, and and maybe for somebody who isn't Catholic that might be listening to this, what is holy water? Holy water is it's a sacramental. We have a number of sacramentals within the Catholic Church, but holy water is one of those things that we use. It reminds us of our baptism, the water that we received in in baptism, the blessing that we received through that. And we use it in many of our activities within the church and even at home. A lot of people take holy water home and they use it to bless their families and they use it to bless their home and the the things that they have in their home. And it's just that a sacramental is something that helps us to, to draw ourselves into the presence of God. 
Okay, so it helps us enter into the divine, so to speak. Okay, and then we come in and we genuflect. And tell us, what is the proper way to genuflect, and why do we genuflect? Well, the traditional way to genuflect in the church, in the presence of God, is to genuflect with, with the right knee going down to the floor, and it goes all the way to the floor. And it's just, it's a mark of reverence that we understand that we're in the presence of God. It, it's, it came from the tradition of honoring kings. When you came into the presence of the court, you genuflected mm-hmm. to the kings. And we recognize that God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So who more, who is more worthy of receiving that reverence than God himself? So again, um, a genuflection is a reverential action and we want to make sure that we do it reverentially and we want to make sure that we do it as completely as possible. Of course, there are some people that cannot physically get down on a knee. So for those people, they they do what they can do. And if it ends up that they can only bow, make a reverential bow, then that's fine. But if you're physically capable of doing a full genuflection, then then that's what you need to be doing. In the same way with the sign of the cross. If you're making the sign of the cross, you need to touch the forehead, you need to touch your chest, and then you need to touch each shoulder. And it's not just my my son jokes that my granddaughter used to say, in the name of the Father, and wash your face, because after she would touch her forehead, she would just swipe her hand around. And that's okay for an 18-month-old, but right. an adult should be able to make the sign of the cross reverently and, and do it completely. So, And then what should the faithful be doing in the pew while we're waiting for Mass to start? We should be settling ourselves and quieting ourselves. A, a lot of parishes have a rosary before Mass. At Immaculate Heart of Mary, we begin at a half hour before Mass starts, and that gives about 10 minutes, eight, 8 to 10 minutes before Mass for quiet time. And everybody should take a, at least a couple of minutes of quiet time before Mass to, to settle themselves and recognize the, the beauty of the things that are about to happen. So we quiet ourselves. We ask God to come to us with send the Holy Spirit to be with us and to to settle our spirits so that when we begin the Mass, we can be active in it and and understand where we're at. And one of the things I do at that time is I ask Mary to be with me because she was at the first Mass and she's at the eternal Mass. She's here to help us. So, Well, and as we're doing this recording, we're celebrating the visitation of the Blessed Mother to Elizabeth. And, you know, in my homily this morning, I discussed what a, a beautiful humbleness that Mary had that she had just heard that she was going to be the mother of the savior of the world and what does she do she packs her bag and she goes to to help her cousin Elizabeth who's six months along in her own pregnancy so that's the kind of humility that that each of us needs to strive for to to live our lives in a way that shows that that we're conscious of the gifts that God is giving us and that we desire to to return praise to him because of the gifts that he's given us Right. She's like the greatest example of charity, I think. Okay. Then the priest enters. And talk about the procession. Why do you process in and why is it in the order it's in? The main reason that it's in the order that it's in is just because we always put the cross out in front. And if if we have incense, the incense goes before the cross because the incense is a a kind of a call to attention that the cross is coming. Again, it goes back to the the old royal processions that they would honor the the visitors that were coming to visit or as the king came into a a particular celebration, all the the people of the the royal court would go in before the king. Mm. And then the king would come in at the last and that would show the people that everybody would know that that's where the king was, was at the end of the procession. 
So in the Catholic procession, the cross comes in first because that's the mark of Christ. And then basically the servers and those who are attending the mass as a minister come in, same as the courtiers in the old royal courts. And then finally, the priest standing as the person of Christ comes in as the final person in the procession honoring Christ as being the king of kings. And during that time, the faithful stand, and we either recite, like on the weekdays, we recite the antiphon, and on weekends and for holy days, we often sing a song. Why are we doing that? Again, that's part of the reverence of of making ourselves a part of, of what is going on. We're recognizing that what is happening is important. Okay. And so when we when we say the antiphon or when we sing, we're we're including ourselves in the procession while remaining in the pews and keeping the order of the service. So, but everybody should be participating in the song or in the antiphon. It doesn't matter whether you're there, you know, a visitor from outside or whether you're a parishioner that's been at the parish for for forty years or if you're a, a member that's in the procession itself. We should be participating in the song or the antiphon. And then after the procession, tell me who kisses the altar. The priest, the celebrant, and any concelebrants, That's and the, the deacons are okay. all—they all reverence the altar at the beginning and tell the faithful why they do that. The altar is the altar of sacrifice. That's the the place where Christ Himself offered Himself to us. So we reverence the altar as a as the place where where Christ brought us into with Him into the sacrifice. And, and again, later in the Mass, we're going to do that again. It'll be, we'll bring ourselves into that celebration of the one sacrifice by offering the sacrifice currently at the Mass. Okay, and then the priest will greet us. Tell us about that. Okay, the, the greeting is the beginning part of the, the entry introductory rite. And basically, it's just the, the priest announcing to the people that he's present and that he understands that they're there and, and what we're there for. When the priest greets the faithful, why do we say, and with your spirit? That's the traditional verbiage that that has been used in the church for a while. It was just also with you. That was a, a valid translation, but the, the church decided that that was not a full translation that, that gave us the, the spirit of what was traditionally said. We're making people think about this, their spiritual aspect of their lives. Oftentimes we get so wrapped up in the physical world that we neglect our spiritual side. And by including that verbiage in the Mass, we're, we're helping people to, to recognize that Mass has a spiritual aspect to it. And it's a very important part of it, so we don't want to neglect that. And he often briefly discusses the Mass of the day. So if there's a particular saint of the day or if there's a celebration, again today we celebrated the, the visitation of Mary Last week we celebrated Trinity Sunday, and this coming week we're celebrating the Feast of the Body and Blood of Christ. And so the priest would normally, in the introduction, right after he greeted the people, announce that, you know, this is the Mass of the day and this is why we're celebrating it. He can remark a little bit on the Scripture reading for the day, or he can just make a statement that he thinks helps the people to understand what the celebration is about for that day. And then we go into the penitential rite. Right. Tell us what that is and how we participate. The penitential rite is is the first part of the Mass where we actually ask God to to lift us up and have mercy on us and forgive us our sins. So so if we have any venial sins, 
that we bring to Mass right at the very beginning. We offer those up and we ask God to give us forgiveness for those venial sins. And it's the the first time that we have to, to truly prepare ourselves for the celebration of the Mass and to make sure that we're as pure as that we can be so that we can be part of that celebration completely. In the penitential rite, the priest is asking for the forgiveness of sins of all the people, correct? Yes. Okay. And then we... And then he calls upon, and we respond for the Lord to have mercy on us. Mm-hmm. So with the, with the first prayer of the, the penitential act, we, we recognize our, our own sinfulness, and we ask our brothers and sisters to, to forgive us. So you know, the, the prayer goes, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. And then we say, I confess to God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned. The term is greatly sinned. We recognize that all sin is a great sin. In my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and in what I have failed to do. And then we recognize our own fault. And then we ask the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints present at the Mass. Because, again, at the Mass, the whole communion of saints is present. All the angels and saints and you, my brothers and sisters, we're including the people in the church with us that day to pray for us to God to, for the forgiveness of those sins. And then the priest says, May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. So he's including himself and the whole congregation, asking God to have mercy, to forgive us, and to, to include us into everlasting life, which is what we were created for. And, and as we're praying for our brothers and sisters, we're also to forgive our brothers and sisters. Absolutely. And um, how does that tie in with the scripture? You know, you need to forgive your brothers and sisters before the sun sets or something. Does that tie into that somehow? It, it, it does. Um, it says don't take a grievance against your brother and sister to to bed with you so before you before you sleep you're supposed to to resolve the issues that you have with your brothers and sisters um, again the easiest way to do that is to do an examination of conscience prior to going to bed and, and just telling god that that you recognize that you have this grievance against your brother and and that you want to let it go of course if you can meet with your brother or sister and, and discuss it with them and and let them know that you're letting it go then that's a more complete way of doing it, but uh, an examination each night before we go to bed is a good way to, to resolve those issues, that, those little grudges that we carry with us to the end of the day. And, and again, this at the beginning of Mass, we're recognizing that we all have those little things that we carry with us, and we're, we're asking God to give us the grace to let those things go and to, to resolve those issues that we have with our brothers and sisters. And, so that, and by doing that, then we're able to enter into the rest of the Mass more pure? More pure, but, but also in communion with, with each but, other. Okay. We're, we're members of the body of Christ. And so when we, when we let those things go, that allows us to be closer to each other, and that makes the body of Christ more complete and, and more connected, which is what communion is all about. Okay. And then one more thing on this aspect. Is there a tie-in to the Old Testament where, you know, the priest is asking for the forgiveness of all the sins of the congregation to where didn't in the Old Testament they enter the temple once a year to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of the people? Yes. Um, something like that? Th- there was a yearly sacrifice, and there was also a sacrifice that, that went on almost continuously in the in the temple the, you know there was people would bring in sin offerings throughout the year but there's one time a year where 
where they would come together and, and do that as a people. And basically, the Catholic Church is, has recognized that, that God founded the, the Hebrew people as his people and that we are a continuation of that. And so we didn't abandon completely the, the rights of the, the, people, the Hebrew people, and we continued to, to use those rights that help us to, to bring ourselves into God's presence. Jesus himself followed the rights of the, the Passover at the Last Supper, so we don't see a reason to abandon the Old Testament rights just because they're from the Hebrews and, and they're not Christian rights. A lot of them have been carried over and been made Christian rights because they were valid to begin with. Okay, and then on Sundays and Holy Days, uh, special solemnities, we say the Gloria. Yes. Again, that's a, a song, in rec- and it should be sung if possible. There, there's going to be times when it can't be sung. I'm, I'm not the greatest a cappella singer in the world, so, <laughs> so most of the time if we don't have some kind of musical accompaniment, I'll, I will say the, the Gloria, but it's intended for it to be sung. And again, as with our quiet prayer at the beginning of Mass, the Gloria is the opportunity for us to recognize that God is great and that he has allowed us to to become part of him in the Mass. And so we recognize the actions of the Mass that, that are about to happen, and we just give God glory, and we recognize that Christ is is there with us, and he's going to take away our sins. And then we recognize the presence of God in heaven, which is where we're trying to lift ourselves up in the Mass to, to be a part of that eternal Mass that's going on in heaven. So, so if we're really paying attention to what we're singing or praying there, that is where we have included ourselves in the heavenly celebration. And then what follows the Gloria? If there's the Gloria, then the Collect follows the Gloria. If the Gloria is not said or sung, then we have the Collect immediately following the, the penitential rite. And the collect, again, is, is a prayer where the priest is calling us as a congregation to, to be close to God and to understand the, the beauty of the, the Mass and what we're starting the celebration of. And during this whole part of the introductory rites, the faithful are standing. Yes. Because we're still like part of the procession and recognizing that we're worshiping the king. Right. Kings and okay. Um, there are several traditional postures for prayer in the Catholic Church. Um, one of the most ancient ones is prone, so laying flat on the floor with your your face down. We rarely use that position anymore in the church. The only two times that I'm absolutely sure that we use it anymore is is during the ordination for a, a deacon or a priest, and I, actually I guess the bishops do it too. So there's three times. So during the ordinations, the, the candidate, the, the person that's being ordained, lays prostrate on the floor in front of the altar, recognizing that, that they are not worthy of the thing that they're being called to do and, and offering themselves up to, for that. So that's basically the only time in the, the new order that we, we do a, a prostration during the Mass. The other two postures that are normal at the Mass are kneeling and standing. And then sitting is a relaxed posture. It's not actually a prayer posture, but it's a posture for learning or listening. So any time in the Mass where we're sitting, we're either learning or listening, or it's a quiet time for to settle yourself. Um, so if we're standing, we recognize that we're either praying or that we're listening to God speaking to us. So during the gospel, we're standing, and that's the reason we're standing during gospel is because we we understand that through the gospel, God is speaking directly to us. So we're, 
for in reverence of God speaking directly to us, we're in the standing position there as well. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, please know we'll be right back with more about the Mass Explained with Father Leo Blasey. This message is brought to you by Jerome and Angela Schmeidler, owners of Messenger Catholic Books and Gifts in Hayes. Thank you for taking time out of your day and tuning into Divine Mercy Radio, where the truth is alive and burning bright. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John chapter 8, verse 31. Remember that God has baptized you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do not let the evils of the world quench the flame burning in your heart. Always stand for the truth. And I won't back down. Well, I know what's right. I got just one life. In a world that keeps on pushing me around. on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Part 1 of The Mass Explained. With Father Leo Blasey. Okay, so we're getting ready to enter into the Liturgy of the Word, so we need to listen, so we sit down, right? Right. Okay. Then tell us about the Liturgy of the Word. Tell us about the three different readings and the the response that we say and how that might tie in together for a certain theme. For the Sunday Mass, there are always three readings, and normally the three readings break down in a way that the first reading is an Old Testament reading— the second reading is a reading from the New Testament that's not the gospel, so it's an epistle or from the Acts of the Apostles. And then the third reading is always the gospel. So the, the, during particular seasons, though, the first reading, the Old Testament reading, can be substituted with a reading from the Acts of the Apostles or the Book of Revelation. So we don't always, at every Mass, get an Old Testament reading, but for the majority of the time and for anticipation of what's going on, we can usually anticipate that the that first reading is going to be an Old Testament reading. The, the first reading is always some connection with the gospel reading, so it's not what we call a continuous reading. So every Sunday we could get a, a reading from one Sunday from the book of Genesis, another Sunday from the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles or from one of the prophets. Um, it's not continuous because it's picked so that it has a connection with the gospel reading for that day. So if we're reading through it, Early, you know, it's a good thing to read through the, the readings for the Mass early so that we can prepare ourselves for the message that we're supposed to receive in, that, in those readings. As we're reading through that in preparation, we can look and say, okay, what is it about this Old Testament reading that connects me to the New Testament reading, to the Gospel reading, which serves the purpose of the Mass that we have for the day? So there's always that connection. And then after the Old Testament reading, we have the responsorial psalm. That's always from the book of Psalms. 
And again, it has some connection with the gospel. So we can look in that psalm that we, we say or that we sing, and, and we can find some connection with the gospel reading. So again, those are not continuous. They're Every Sunday it's picked particularly for the the gospel that's being read. And then after the responsorial psalm, we go into the New Testament reading. Usually it's a, a reading from the, one of Paul's letters, but also we include John's letters and Peter's letters into those readings. And those are usually what we call semi-continuous. So from one Sunday to the next, you're going to be able to see the connection with the, the previous Sunday's reading. So we, we might read Paul's letter to the Corinthians for six or eight Sundays in a row. Mm-hmm. And though there might be a verse or two that's not included in between the two readings, it's going to be semi-continuous. So it's going to follow along unless we have a particular solemnity or, or we're in a particular time of the calendar where we're saying greetings for, the, for that time of the calendar, for Lenten season or for Easter season. And then immediately after the second reading, we have the Alleluia verse, oftentimes the, the verse itself is taken from the gospel, or it's just a, a particular statement that's, that's helping us, to again, to understand what the gospel is going to be about. And, of course, we sing Alleluia because we, we recognize that we're with the angels and saints who are singing Alleluia constantly in heaven. Mm-hmm. So, it, again, it's to help us to, to get our mind in the right place, to, to be in the presence of God and to hear what he's trying to speak to us through the gospel. Then the, the priest or the deacon, they're the only ones that are allowed to read. You have to be ordained in order to read the gospel during a mass. So, so it has to be either the priest or the deacon that reads the gospel. And they, they call the people together prior to the gospel. So, And just as we, we say the prayer, as we enter into mass, we're, we're asking God to be present with us. Lord, be with you. And the congregation's response, again, is, is and with your spirit. We're recognizing the spiritual aspect of of ourselves and of the community. And then the, the priest or the deacon introduces the gospel, and then he begins to, to read the message for the day. And, and the gospel readings are usually pretty short. Every once in a while we have one that's drawn out during the the Easter celebration. And on mm-hmm. Palm Sunday we have the, the crucifixion narrative, and, and those are long and drawn out. But usually they're brief. The church recognizes that we only have a, a shortest attention span. So mm. so they give us short, pithy readings that, that allow us to recognize God's movement in our world. And I think that one of the big issues that we have today is people don't take those readings and, and look at what the texts are around them. The intent is to draw you into the text and to to have you think about those texts as you go about your, your daily lives. And what too often happens is we hear this short little reading on Sunday we're not really into it when we hear it, and then we don't take it and make it a part of our lives. So if we're really listening to the message that we're given in the readings for the Mass, then we can use those for the rest of the week. And every once in a while, we're going to have to go into the Scripture, and we're going to have to look at what's what's going on around those readings. Now, a, a priest will do his best to to show you what's going on around those readings during his homily if, if he focuses on the Gospel or on one of the readings to, to help you to do that. But again, we've only got 10 or 15 minutes to, to give you that message, and oftentimes that's not enough. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we try to give you that, that boost, that, that help to, to get you to where you can, can use the scriptures for your daily lives, but oftentimes it's, 
and oftentimes in our own lives, we need to, to really look at what's behind those texts and, and incorporate that into our lives so that we can, can live for God who, who gave his life for us. So when you're saying that the first reading and the gospel reading, which is usually first reading, which usually is an Old Testament reading, and the gospel reading is something from Jesus' time here yeah. on earth. So is that in a way in it that they have a connection saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Or am I reading too much into this? The Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the New Testament. Everything that we find in the Old Testament, we can have a connection in the New Testament with. If we go down to the, the creation story, Adam is the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. There's a connection there. Adam is the father of, of the human race. Jesus is the fullness of the human race. Eve is the first mother. Mary in the New Testament is, is the new mother of the human race because she's the mother of Jesus who, who represents all of humanity. So we can always, in anything, if we're, if we're unable to find a New Testament connection with the Old Testament, then we're not seeing the Old Testament for what it's for. As, as Christians and as Catholics, the Old Testament is supposed to point us to the New Testament, give us a foreshadowing, and the New Testament always fulfills the Old Testament. So if we can't make that work, if we can't justify the two and, and find in, in the New Testament the, the what is foretold in the Old Testament, then we need to ask ourselves if we're really reading it the way that it's intended to be reading, because the, the two have a very positive connection. And that's that's the reason that the church has kept the Old Testament. If if there was no connection between the Old and the New, then we might as well throw the Old Testament out and just focus on the New Testament. But, right. but the church, church understands that it's all the Word of God and that it's all beneficial to us. And, you know, Paul said that all Scripture is beneficial for teaching and correction. But we have to recognize that when Paul said that, there was no New Testament. There might He might have written one or two letters prior to the, making that statement, but they weren't recognized as scriptural at that time. So the, test, the scripture that Paul was talking about was the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, we can include that and bring the New Testament into that as our understanding because the church recognizes that the Old and the New are all scriptural. And we can use Paul's statement for that. But when Paul made that statement, the only scripture that was available to him was the Old Testament. And that's, I think that's a valuable lesson to us because we need to understand that the Old Testament has value. So reading those stories and recognizing the lives and the, and the people's actions and God's actions with the people is important to us because history, while it never repeats itself, we say history repeats itself, it doesn't ever exactly repeat itself, but history is cyclical. And we tend to go through the same types of experiences in our lives as we're as we struggle to become independent, as we become independent, as we struggle with our daily lives, and then at the end of our lives, as we become dependent again, and we we recognize that that we're we rely on other people. And I think that if we could take our childhood part where we're relying on people in the end of our life and recognize that we're relying on people and recognize that all of our lives we're reliant on, on other people and we're relying on God to, to help us to be who we're supposed to be. Right before we do the gospel, we usually take our thumb and make a sign of the cross on our forehead, our lips, and our uh, heart. So why are we doing this? You know, in the ancient tradition, it was just the, the priest that did that, just the minister that was reading. But in the 
the Middle Ages, it became common for the, the lay people to do that as well. And basically what we're saying is we're asking God to be in our minds, on our lips, and in our hearts so that we might worthily listen to and proclaim the gospel. So that should be what we're saying when we're doing that action is God be be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart so that I may worthily hear and proclaim the gospel. Okay, and then after the gospel, you already said we go into the homily and the presider or the priest or the deacon is trying to make a connection for us or a lesson from, from the readings. And then we stand and say the creed. So tell us what the creed is and how it developed maybe. The the creed is our profession of faith. It's what we believe as Catholics and as Christians about what the church is for. It developed in the the creed that we say at Mass developed in the early and the late 4th century. We we call it the the Nicene Creed because that's where the the basics of that creed came from, the Council of Nicaea. In the early councils, they always came out with a, a statement of belief. The Nicene Creed, that that creed was their profession of faith for that council. And then it was adopted by the church and used for the whole church. It's very similar to the Apostles' Creed, which we recognize as a very early creed, baptismal creed. Mm -hmm. So those that wanted to be baptized in the church would would profess by saying the the Apostles' Creed that these are the things that I believe. Mm -hmm. And the Nicene Creed expounded on those and opened those up a little bit. And then the Council of Constantinople in the late 4th century added a couple of lines about the Holy Spirit because during that 4th century, there were a lot of debates and, and a lot of growth in our understanding about Jesus and who he is as God and as man and, and how he is related there. And that was hashed out at the Council of Nicaea. And, and those faithful statements came out of the Council of Nicaea on Christ. But after that, then the debate happened, okay, well, who and what is the Holy Spirit and how should we look at him? And so when the Council of Constantinople came up later on in the century, that they took the Nicene Creed as the creed for that council as well, but they added the verbiage about the Holy Spirit, which made statements of what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And, and those are all very important parts of our faith and, and what we believe. And so the church sees it as important in making that statement at every Mass. Right. It's neat, too, because we're, as you said in the beginning, we're with the heavenly, you know, saints and angels praising God, and we're recognizing it again in here as we're saying the communion of saints. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's <laughs> wonderful. And, and if we if we can really bring ourselves to be active in it and to lift ourselves up in it, it's, it's a grace-filling thing. We've mentioned the communion of saints a couple of times, and, and a lot of people may not really understand what the, the communion of saints is talking about. But we, we have a, a threefold, a three-tiered church currently. We have the, the faithful here on earth, um, traditionally known as the church militant. So we're, we're here and we're struggling. And then we have the church suffering, which is, as the church teaches, the souls in purgatory those who died without mortal sin on their soul, but who have some restitution to make for the actions of their lifetime, um, they're included in the, the communion of saints. They're part of the faithful. And then we have the, the church victorious, which is, are the saints in heaven. And so when we say the communion of saints, we're talking about all of those souls. Again, we're 
we're, we have a spiritual aspect, and the church is looking at the spiritual when we talk about the communion of saints. Those those three aspects of the church are included in the communion of saints, and eventually, at the end of time, those three churches will be united and will all be the church victorious. We know that Christ wins in the end, and that we will all be part of that that victorious church who's celebrating the mass in heaven that we're bringing ourselves in and making ourselves a part of today and every day when we celebrate the Mass. Right. I, I don't understand how they can say the church is boring <laughs> or Mass is boring. Thank you for listening to Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Please tune in next week as we continue to explore the Mass from the Liturgy of the Eucharist through the concluding rites and beyond. Please know you can listen to Divine Mercy Radio via radio computer smartphone app, or Amazon Echo. We invite you to visit our website at dvmercy.com for an uplifting spiritual experience. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, KBDM 88.1 Hayes and KRTT 88.1 Great Band. If today you hear his voice, pardon not your hearts. 